0: Welcome to this Thorax podcast. I'm Professor Andy Bush. I'm one of the editors in chief of Thorax. And it's my very great pleasure to welcome Professor David Gozal, who's a world leader in pediatric sleep medicine and who's going to be president of the ATS in 2016. And David has contributed a review article for Thorax about sleep disordered breathing in children. And it's great to talk to him. So, David we've moving from a sort of one size fits all approach of snoring children as just a subject of joke like in Charles Dickens in Pickwick Papers to actually a much more focused individualized approach could you maybe start by just summarizing the article and and its contribution to this sort of new personalized medicine approach
1: absolutely thank you Andy for having me in this podcast and uh... Thank you to the other authors of the uh, of the review, our Dr. Tan, Yuiling Tan, and Dr. Leila Karandish-Gozal, who really uh, did the bulk of the work, uh, and of course I am always happy to get the honors. So I think that the most important facet of the article is the transition from the understanding uh, over the last uh, 15 years or so that pediatric sleep disorder breathing or pediatric sleep apnea is a a disease where one size fits all. In other words, children who snore are all at risk and are all equally at risk to start understanding that there are multiple phenotypes uh, that are present in pediatric sleep apnea. So the first one is that the degree of severity as it is um, represented by the polysomnographic or the sleep study results, the measures that are currently used may not provide an adequate degree of prediction as to what the actual clinical phenotype might be. So, for example, at any level of severity, for example, an AHI of 10, which would be considered moderate to severe sleep apnea in children, uh, we may find children that exhibit a very large uh, degree or severity of end-organ morbidities, be it cognitive, behavioral, cardiovascular, uh, et cetera, or metabolic, and others who will completely uh, be free of any of those c- consequences. So that alone uh, would prompt a very different clinical approach in making decisions at the healthcare level and who needs to be treated, who, how do we treat these children, et cetera. Second, um, as it relates to understanding better uh, how these phenotypes come about, uh, I think that once we understood that there is a, personalized phenotype which is something that we have seen in many other diseases that um, we needed to understand what the determinants of those uh, individualized phenotypes were. and I think that a little bit of that work has been done. There's much more work to be done but nevertheless, two big bags of factors come along. One is not Not unexpectedly, the genomic uh, variance is obviously a very important determinant of phenotypic variants, so uh, in other words, single nucleotide polymorphisms in specific genes that may be pathophysiologically related to the phenotype or to the end organ morbidity are contributing now in substantial degree to the phenotype. And as an example, we found that children with single nucleotide polymorphisms in the uh, NADPH oxidase gene, a gene that is very important, or a cluster of genes that is very important in generating oxidative stress, uh, could account for some of the variants in children at any level of severity with the presence of cognitive dysfunction or the absence of cognitive dysfunction. With children with a certain type of uh, SNP in the P22 subunit, uh, having less of an activity of the enzyme, which led, therefore, to less oxidative stress and, therefore, protection from the appearance of cognitive deficits despite the presence of obvious uh, sleep apnea. So this is an example, but there are many others that uh, are indicated in the review uh the second element which i think is quite novel is the discovery that um sleep apnea is associated with epigenetic changes and this uh, really marks uh, very initial discoveries over the last 2 years or so in which uh we have identified that, indeed, epigenetic modifications in specific genes that are, again, involved in either, uh, for example, metabolic function or vascular function may, indeed, be contributing to the phenotype that we see at the cardiometabolic level. And so, the question is, one, are these changes reversible? uh, If we do not treat the disease on time, and so, they raise a lot of concerns because, as you know, childhood is a very vulnerable period for epigenetic changes, and lack of intervention at that critical period may translate into permanent changes that may then um, you know, translate into adulthood diseases or onset of adult diseases. So an area that needs to be watched and one that clearly a lot of work will need to be done.
0: So the conventional assessment of the severity of sleep-disordered breathing was always physiological, wasn't it? A number of different physiological channels, recordings were made, and the uh, judgment of severity was made on their basis. But now you're moving beyond that to the assessing the end, or, the end organ and the effects of the end organ, accepting there isn't a sort of one, one-to-one relationship. How does this work out in practice? How do you see it changing sleep-medicine?
1: So I think that it will be very important when we set up priorities of specific therapies and we will talk a little bit about therapeutic options in a a moment that we define the urgency and the priority of treatment based on uh, the phenotype and the potential genotype. And so it is clear that what we need to do is to identify biomarkers that enable us to predict in a relatively straightforward way, use the polysomnographic or the sleep study results, uh, that set of physiological variables, but put it in a contextual setting of additional uh, inform- informative uh, elements, such as specific levels of certain biomarkers, or the presence or absence of uh, a phenotype that can be readily measured in an easy way in order to construct a risk um, score that ultimately will dictate the priority with which we will treat and and the form of treatment. So the second component of the variance in phenotype that we need to be uh, aware of and has been clearly very well studied in other diseases such as asthma or COPD are environmental factors. Uh, what we eat, how we eat, do we exercise, uh, what air we breathe, and so on. So uh, the presence of pollution can exacerbate the the severity of sleep apnea. We, we have evidence to that effect in whether it's indoor or outdoor pollution, uh, cigarette smoke exposures, uh, but also uh, what we eat. High-fat, refined carbohydrates will increase the susceptibility uh, to sleep apnea-induced end-organ morbidities, And and the opposite would be true, for example, for environments where there's very high literacy or cognitive enrichment or, for example, physical activity and exercise. There's evidence that would suggest that these are protective. So I think that those elements will have to be incorporated into the risk score that we were discussing previously.
0: That's really interesting because, of course, your work and others has documented that the neurocognitive effects of sleep disordered breathing and the improvement of tonsillectomy. And tonsillectomy for a a child and a parent is not a small deal and they want to know, um, will my child benefit? Will the grades improve? And do you feel that you're now on the way to being able to answer that question in a way that perhaps physiology has failed to answer that question? Well, that's a
1: wonderful uh, point, and one for which there's very little answers. Unfortunately, the only randomized control study um, ever conducted on the selectomy for sleep apnea was just published last year in the New England Journal of Medicine, and uh, unfortunately, uh, and I, I was a participant, but unfortunately. Um, this group uh, had a, due to a variety of constraints related to safety and so on, had a relatively restricted uh, uh, scope of disease. So, not all of the answers are going to be obtained from that specific study. That said, you know, there's no doubt that selectomy improves the severity of sleep apnea. The question is one, will it resolve sleep apnea? And the answer is probably not. And second, is it really the treatment of choice for a large group of individuals who may have milder disease and who could potentially benefit from alternative non surgical interventions? We need to remember that um, adenotant selectomy like all surgeries, is fraught with you know a certain risk for post-operative complications, and in, in, in certain morbidities like bleeding, infection, and so on, uh, respiratory compromise, and ultimately, potentially death. And the, the statistics are there to show that there is some degree of risk of death, although small, but nevertheless uh, measurable. So in that context, uh, the risk-benefit of adenotonsillectomy has not very, been as well established and as one would have liked in the 21st century, and uh, because of that, I think that a lot of work needs to be done in order to generate the evidence of what are the real indications for a for sleep apnea, and one, and second, whether there are alternative modes of therapy that can be derived from a much deeper understanding of the mechanisms that drive the proliferation of upper airway lymphoid tissue, and by knowing so, the development of uh, therapeutic targets and The beginning of that work has has, has been initiated uh, through transcriptomic analysis and uh, trying to identify specific targets, but we are very much at the beginning of the road and uh, I think that this is an area that clearly would bear it a much greater investment by scientists to try to identify alternatives so that the 600,000 or so electomies performed in the United States alone every year in children would uh, probably be reduced to a much more palatable range and lesser number that would be where the indications would be clear-cut. And for the rest, non-surgical interventions might be a more appropriate way of uh, reducing both the disease severity and improving the outcomes.
0: Yes, indeed, and we'd all want to minimise the number of surgical procedures done on children without losing the undoubted benefits of surgery. Can I ask you to turn now to, to epigenetics? We're all taught as medical students that uh, sleep disordered breathing runs in families, and rather ignorantly, I'd thought it's because maybe it just related to body habitus running in, in families, but do you think it's more likely epigenetic or other mechanisms? Could you speculate on that?
1: Well, I love to speculate, uh, Andy, as you know. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we all, David? So, Don't we all? <laughs> so two two aspects. One is it could well be that the susceptibility to the development of end-organ morbidities in the context of sleep apnea in children might be either the result of sleep apnea affecting the epigenome. We have evidence that this might be the case or that epigenetic changes occurring in the family or in the mother or due to parental, parental risk factors that might influence the epigenome of the fetus might then translate to an increased vulnerability. And Those are very important areas in which my lab is now conducting quite thorough studies in mouse models, but I don't think that we are yet ready to demonstrate it either way. Be that as it may, I think that it's important to recognize that there are unique opportunities during childhood, during this window of development in which the plasticity of the the genome is much more readily achievable, to modify risk by identifying one Uh, which epigenetic changes are in place, and two, which ones are reversible with relatively simple interventions, for example, physical activity, or better sleep quality, or better nutrition. And by doing this, uh, really try to reduce what I view as an escalation of an epidemic of sleep apnea in our population, both during childhood, but also in adulthood, and the statistics are quite staggering.
0: So both of us as pediatricians are well aware that what happens very early on has reverberating echoes throughout adult life, um, a message that sometimes doesn't get through to our adult colleagues. And one of the worries to me about the sleep disordered breathing literature in children is the increasing weight of evidence that this is not just something that affects childhood, but like as you expose your child to cigarette smoke, that has long-term effects. So the same with sleep disordered breathing, but studying this is going to be quite a formidable undertaking isn't it because ideally you want sleep studies done now fast forward 40 or 50 years and see what the results of the sleep disordered breathing are and that's not going to happen in my lifetime and probably not yours either how can we get around that how can we select biomarkers that actually going to say this child's at real risk for early cardiovascular disease or whatever in mid-adulthood
1: So I think that there's what I call the two ends of the spectrum. I think we can take the adult populations, identifying epigenetic signatures that might represent specific groups at risk, and then try by analogy, identify whether those epigenetic marks are present in subgroups of children with uh, sleep apnea, and see whether a treatment in an early intervention can reverse those. If that is the case, then we would at least, if this is not a cause and effect and it's not mechanistic enough, but at least it would shorten that very lengthy period of time in which the studies would be needed to really demonstrate the mechanistic aspects of the causality that we both, of course, would have liked to see.
0: So David, finally, in terms of today's clinical practice, what should sleep, pediatric sleep physicians be looking to be doing differently now or in the near future as a result of this new personalized medicine approach to sleep disordered breathing in kids
1: so the, so the first one is uh, nothing like prevention and uh, of course screening uh, uh, periodically with relatively simple tools and i think that even though Not diagnostic per se, but at least as a screening tools, questionnaires uh, that indicate at least a risk estimate of sleep sleep apnea in children uh, are now available. Need to be validated, of course, in the population setting where the physicians are practicing. But nonetheless, uh, I think that are relative. Those are relatively simple tools that would enable screening very early and periodically for. For sleep apnea. And once those symptoms are recognized, I think that it's our obligation to start developing these risk scores where the diagnosis is established, but also the risk assessment, either through biomarkers or through biomarkers combined with additional phenotypic features that we would see as phenotypic biomarkers, in order to construct a risk assessment and then a determination of who is a priority for treatment, who needs to be treated expeditiously, uh, what type of treatments that are needed, and I think that this is where we need to go as a field in order to, one, do the earliest diagnosis as possible, two, to minimize the risk of long-term consequences, and three, to achieve optimal outcomes in the immediate or short-term uh, as well.
0: So should there, is there a role for biobanking? Should we be storing DNA or urine or anything else on every child who is having a SEEP study for future interrogation to confirm or generate hypotheses?
1: I would definitely encourage um, all my colleagues around the world to do so. We have been doing this now for quite some time and I think that the more pediatricians, pediatric respirologists, uh, sleep physicians uh, do collect these samples and store them in a biobank mode. This will clearly provide unique opportunities to unravel some of the major questions that we have been discussing today. The technology is already available. We have in-house in most of our academic institutions and in the world, we have the technology that would enable many of these questions to be answered relatively expeditiously. And so um, I believe that we need to set a priority that where uh, three or four percent of the children have sleep apnea based on current uh, criteria and 10 percent or so have habitual snoring, which is a major symptom potentially suggestive of a risk of sleep apnea. We, uh, this is too high of a, of a prevalence in which we cannot ignore and therefore we need to develop the armamentarium of tools that will enable us to do the right thing for our children both now and to prevent their consequences in the future.
0: David, we really appreciate you taking the time for this podcast and above all for the article that you and your co-authors put together. Uh, We hope our readers enjoy it, and thank you very much indeed.
1: Thank you very much.